Hello and welcome to another episode of Hospice News' Elevate podcast. I'm Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, and today's topic focuses on how hospice providers are responding to changes in policy, payment, and regulation brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. Here with me today is Jen Flubar, who is Vice President of Clinical Excellence at a Grace Hospice in Supportive Care in Wisconsin. In this role, she oversees quality, compliance, clinical education, infection prevention, and employee health. She has also served on the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization's Regulatory and Quality and Standards Committee since 2015, where she works with other hospice professionals to advance end-of-care life. Hi, Jen. It's so wonderful to have you with us today. Good morning, Holly. It's great to be here. Yeah, I just want to get us started right away with our discussion and start us off with a question about maybe how you've seen, what have you seen as the most impactful regulatory developments during the pandemic? And I know that's a big question to get us started with, so go right ahead. Yeah, it sure is. I think when the pandemic first started, hospices were just figuring out how is this going to look. We've got people certainly coming into our building, receiving inpatient care, but most of our patients were serving in in our community. So what is that going to look like? I think there was definitely significant relief when the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, or CMS, issued their 1135 blanket waivers, and that happened really early on in the pandemic. And the goal of that, in CMS's words, not mine, was to allow providers to focus on patient care in the most flexible and innovative ways possible, which we absolutely appreciated. So the specific things relating to hospice range from waiving volunteer requirements, increasing the timing between the comprehensive assessment from 15 to 21 days, waiving on-site visits for hospice aid or CNA supervision. And then, which was probably the most impactful for us, was the provisions as it related to telehealth, both for face-to-face visits and in the provision of routine home care. Yeah, I know that that's been echoed as well as telehealth has been a very important part of continuing to reach patients and their families, right? No, thanks for those thoughts. But what shifts in regulation and public policy or would you say are at the top of the mind for hospices right now? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked in hospice compliance since 20, 2014, mm-hmm. and we are definitely seeing the way that hospice compliance looks now compared to even then is pretty pretty drastic. We can definitely see, especially with new rules that have come out, the stronger shift to treating hospices like other healthcare entities, specifically as it relates to quality reporting and really starting to link quality and compliance very, very closely together. And most recently, we saw that change in which went live in the Federal Register in August of 2021 and all of the new claims-based measures that we're seeing as part of the hospice quality reporting program. We're also seeing shifts for uh, CAP star rating, so very similar to what our skilled nursing partners are seeing which is anticipated to go live probably in the next year where it'll be publicly reported. One of the other things that happens... I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how do you see that being so significant for hospices? 
I, it's just because it's new, and I think we don't necessarily know what to expect. And CMS has been as transparent as they possibly can about how to how these star ratings are going to be calculated. But I think there's just a lot that we don't know because when we are getting our information for CAPS, it's before it is case mixed. So we don't necessarily know what those final results are until we see our preview reports or until it's publicly reported. So it leaves, it leaves hospice just kind of guessing where they're going to land. Mm, okay. Thank you for providing those extra thoughts. I think that really, that unknown area is really going to be challenging for hospices as well to kind of navigate. Yeah, and I think and that's I, really why we're talking about this today is that there's a lot of shifts and it's difficult to keep up with. It's difficult to know just where they're fitting in, right? Yeah. And I think, too, one of the other big things that is at the top of all hospice's mind or should be is the regulatory scrutiny that we continue to see and the increased audit activity, both for patients receiving routine level of care and general inpatient care. A lot of dialogue about length of stay which is really challenging for hospices to navigate because our patients are getting sicker. Their care is getting much more complex, and we don't have patients that fit perfectly into the LCDs that were designed years ago to help us in determining prognosis of you know terminal illness less than six months. So it is, we're just seeing lots of changes and things that we need to be aware of as we're looking at eligibility for patients. Mm -hmm. So I think that answers a little bit more about my next question for you, which was how are you seeing all these changes kind of shaping compliance for hospices? And you started providing a little bit of these thoughts. Do you want to expand upon those? Yeah. So, you know, we're seeing the increased scrutiny for all levels of care. So really just hospices identifying what are our areas of risk mm -hmm. and how can we mitigate that as much as we possibly can. So I think hospices are needing, and specifically at a grace, shifting a lot of resources on auditing and monitoring, really placing a greater emphasis on hospice compliance, namely as it relates to documentation standards for all disciplines. I think this is going to be really critical because we're seeing a lot of new staff join our organizations, you know, kind of in the midst of a healthcare shortage crisis. So how can you continually be getting that education out to staff about how do you document about decline, which is not necessarily second nature for a lot of staff coming to the, our organization. And how do you document that, right, to avoid that scrutiny and, and just kind of cross all your T's, dot all your I's, make sure that it's on, you know, it's documented in that visit as well. Yeah, that's definitely an important part was just getting the training and the, the awareness across the board on all of the stuff that it interacts with that patient, right? You got so, it. Mm -hmm. So how do you think that as the next question I have for you is about the 2022 home health rule and just how you think it will affect hospice providers of the hospice provisions and changes that are in that? What do you see as something that's maybe at the top of your mind when it comes to that rule and those provisions that affect hospices? Yeah. So I think there are a few key areas in that rule related to hospice survey reform, 
the inclusion of the special focus program for hospices, and then some of the enforcement remedies to include temporary management, civil monetary penalties, and suspension of payments. Um, you know, looking specifically at the hospice survey reform, I don't imagine that there's a lot of surveyors out there or a lot of hospices, excuse me, who are upset about this. You know, we want, we want consistent surveys. Our, the hospice benefit is fairly unique and nuanced and a lot of surveyors have very different interpretations of our regs. And I don't imagine that there's hospices out there who have not had to explain the Medicare hospice benefit to a surveyor as they walk through the building. So again, I think the more consistent we can get there, it's going to be a really, really good thing for hospices, whether that survey is coming at the state level or coming from an accreditation agency. I think the the special focus program that they're looking at, not unlike what we're seeing with our facility partners and their special focus facility initiative, it's really looking at significant quality problems, which isn't a bad thing. We just want to make sure as hospices that it's thought out and consistent from state to state. You know, one of the things that hospices are strongly advocating for in the comment letters in response to this rule is let's get a technical expert panel together and CMS does a really good job with doing this to say, okay, hospices, what are you concerned about? What do we really need to be focusing on? Which is good and, and what's needed. And then lastly, the, the sanctions. You know, again, there is this may not necessarily be a bad thing, but it absolutely has the potential to significantly affect hospices, especially if we're talking about suspending payments. So above those CMPs, mm-hmm. the way it's written right now is that they're looking to suspend all payments. And I think what hospices are advocating for is let's make this like other entities. So home health is a great example where if a home health has payments suspended, it's for their new admission. So let's not make this across the board suspension of payments for hospices as they work to get their programs kind of put back together after a particularly bad survey. So I think there's going to be a lot more coming on this, and hospices definitely need to be aware and advocating for what is going to be best for our organizations and, of course, for our patients. Mm-hmm. I know that that special focus program is, has been a concern that has been mentioned as well, and I, I know that that impacts hospices, and they're just worried about that. You know, maybe it might be the financial, maybe it might be the operational impact. It's just a lot of layers, you know, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, and one of the layers in legislation that's been introduced and in, in moving forward, you, you mentioned it at the top of the hour, just that, that importance of community care to hospices. So what we've been noticing is the legislation being moved forward on a dedicated community-based palliative care benefit. I wanted to touch on this with you as far as what would such a benefit mean for hospice providers looking to grow and sustain their palliative care service lines? Yeah, I think this is even a grace is doing this. Yeah, (laughs) you got it. I mean, Mm -hmm. the fact that legislation is even looking at this, it is so good for our industry because it shows that 
others are seeing the value of palliative care for those with complex care or that are really chronically ill. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things that they're really looking to do is not only increase the amount of beneficiaries that can receive these services, which is great, but Mm -hmm. also how can we provide a better reimbursement structure for organizations that are providing this care? The reimbursement for palliative or supportive care has definitely been a challenge over the years, and it can be really challenging for organizations without the resources to be able to provide these really, really necessary services. So I think that changing the reimbursement structure is going to be really significant and really hope to certainly increase access and really increase the clinical outcomes for beneficiaries that are receiving community-based palliative care. And then in the larger scope of healthcare, how are we benefiting our healthcare systems at large by hopefully reducing hospitalizations and total cost of care and showing the greatest benefit of, of palliative or supportive care. Right. And as the, you know, as that legislation moves forward or whatever, the outcomes that kind of fall out from it, do you expect to see maybe more, is it sort of this <laughs> incline that you'll set, expect to see more hospices begin to offer that palliative care if it's something that they can support and have reimbursement for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that this is supportive care is really intuitive for hospices that don't already provide it. Because when you think about the, the Medicare hospice benefit, it's very much a focus on symptom management, managing mm-hmm. goals of care discussions and outcomes, and working with patients and families to develop individualized plans of care. In a nutshell, those are also the primary tenets of what palliative or supportive care is. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be a very logical shift for a lot of hospices to be able to provide this much-needed service. Right. Sort of as a complement and, and another avenue towards reaching a different patient population, but a similar, along the similar thread, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we were talking about some of the telehealth flexibilities earlier, CMS introduced during the pandemic, and, and telehealth is definitely one of those that we're seeing it might be lasting. So as many hospice providers, even a grace, as I understand, have ramped up those telehealth capabilities, and it's been almost two years now. So what will be key in these telehealth considerations as hospices are looking ahead? And where do they have room to improve when it comes to telehealth services if there's, you know, that unknown element of what's going to happen? I think hospices got really adept at figuring out how can we be utilizing telehealth, especially early in the pandemic Mm -hmm. when families specifically facilities were saying, we can't have you entering our building because right. we don't want to put anyone here at risk. Yep, the visit, um, so visitor restrictions, was, and those even applied to staff too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You got it. So it was, you know, we were using them, as we spoke about earlier, for face-to-faces and certainly some of the routine visits. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for hospices if we can continue with telehealth post-public health emergency, thinking about how can we improve timeliness and access to care. 
So thinking about kind of out of the box ways, could we be utilizing telehealth for our triage nurses? Where a lot of times we're relying on the person calling, if it's not the patient, to be the eyes and ears for that triage nurse on the other end of the phone to figure out what do we need to be doing? And could we use telehealth in those instances so that the triage nurse could actually put their eyes on a patient to more effectively and efficiently triage recommendations or determining next steps, even if that's, I need to get a nurse out to you right now, but in the meantime, until they get there, these are the things that I want you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that hospices have to be really, really mindful of, and certainly we've seen these challenges at a grace, is just some of the technical aspects of telehealth can be really, really challenging. Absolutely. Some of our older yeah. populations, some of them love using technology and are using Facebook to, to communicate with their families, but not all of our patients are in that same, same position. Mm-hmm. So having those families that don't use email and don't have access to internet because it's just not something that they're, they're needing to have. Um, so really thinking about how do you get around those hurdles, thinking about the populations that we're using telehealth for. You know, if you're trying to figure out how to best meet the needs of a patient with dementia, is telehealth going to be the most appropriate for someone that has never really utilized technology in that way? And then I think the other thing is really thinking about, especially in those hospices that serve rural communities. At a Grace, we reach those rural communities and we don't always have great internet access, period. Mm-hmm. So how is that going to affect the services that we're able to provide? So just right. thinking outside of the box and constantly being coming up with solutions for how to meet these needs. So it's a lot of different multifaceted sort of elements to look at. You have to look at that connectivity on your organization's end. And just your systems and if, what can you can handle and hope that those thrive and then meeting, you know, it's an opportunity though too, to, like you said, connect your staff together across the board, not just to your patients and their families. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, it opens doors and it also provides these challenges too of what can and can't we do? What can and can't we bill for? How much should we? be investing. So I think that's a really great question that I'm I'm glad that we (laughs) unpacked a little bit more. I think it's going to be one that is interesting to see how it unfolds. Well, I think the last question I had for you, I know you don't have a crystal ball or anything in front of you, but what should did. (laughs) that's one of our favorite questions to ask is if you had Mm -hmm. something and you could look ahead into next year, what is your hospice at a grace and and what should other hospices be doing as they prepare and look ahead for 2022? Well, I think even though it's not directly a compliance issue, I think trying to be as proactive as we possibly can about what is anticipated to be a worsening healthcare worker shortage. We anticipate that it's going to get worse before it gets better, unfortunately. So hospices really need to be planning. How are we going to meet the needs of our patients in the recruitment of new staff, but also our retention strategies for how can we retain these experienced hospice and supportive care clinicians to make sure that we can continue to grow on that knowledge base and the new people coming in 
have someone to learn from just because hospice is nuanced and people don't come in knowing how to be a hospice clinician. I think the, the scrutiny is very, very real. Being ready for audits um, from external bodies. I mean, we've heard for years that it's a matter of when, not if, hospices will be involved in large-scale audits. So just being ready and not being surprised as you get that letter in the mail. Mm -hmm. I think being ready and in a constant state of survey readiness is something that a grace has really worked really hard to maintain. You know, we're doing mock surveys. We need to know that our staff, especially as we're having more and more new staff coming through our building, do they know what to expect if a surveyor were to walk through the door and now they have someone shadowing them on visits? You know, how can we maintain business as normal and we're just out there to show the good work that we do day in and day out to mm-hmm. a visiting a visiting surveyor? And then I think the other thing that we really have to be mindful of and just keep thinking about is how it, are the changes to the hospice quality reporting program going to be affecting our industry? really studying the preview reports that are coming out, looking at our quality data, trying to be proactive with the data that we're getting because the things that we're getting in our preview reports, it's a few years old. So is Mm -hmm. there a way that we can access data in much more real time so that we can be influencing change before we hear about it two years down the road? All right. What can you be doing proactively and then responding to your own data and shaping how you move forward. Right. Well, that's a great piece of advice. (laughs) Well, we've covered a a sea of thought when it comes to the hospice regulatory landscape so far in this episode, there's so much more to unpack, but I think that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for sharing your insight with our listeners and that are tuning in, Jen. It was a pleasure to have you with us for this episode of Elevate. Perfect. Well, I appreciate your time, Holly. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. We invite you to keep abreast and stay tuned for more from Hospice News.